Biblical sexuality, lesson number two. We are throwing the curriculum up on the overhead, so or the jumbotron, so you can follow ahead. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of a review here. We're going to cover the first marriage, part two, because in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter one covers the whole creation account, all seven days, and then chapter two starts back over at day six and moves forward. Genesis does that a lot, as does a lot of the Pentateuch. It'll cover a big period of time, and then if you're not careful, you think we're jumping around, but we're really jumping back in time to cover something in detail. So let's read here. As we study biblical sexuality, we must keep in mind that the Bible records God's self-revelation to mankind through the law of Moses, the prophets, the gospels, and the New Testament epistles. This is what we collectively call the Bible, and it is God's self-revelation. This is basic theology here. It is how he chooses to reveal himself to mankind. The Almighty's self-revelation is progressive. We don't mean that in terms of politics or academics. We mean it advances. That is, God continued to explain his nature and righteousness to mankind as his creation grew in the relationship with the Lord, much as a parent continues to reveal more and more about themselves as their child grows. I think we understand that parallel. Uh, my, my oldest is 11. She has no idea what I did in college. She has no idea what my life was like in Baton Rouge as a child or in Seattle as a teenager. She doesn't know what my life in Indianapolis was like yet. It's not important. I have not revealed that to her yet. She's not at a place where she could relate. But as she grows, we can go back in time and visit what me and mommy did when we were first married, how we met, etc. This revelation reached its final written zenith in the New Testament. Let's be clear on that. Written zenith. There's no more to be said or revealed until the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ at his second coming. My personal conviction, I don't know if it's considered a heresy, I believe more of God will be revealed in the ages to come. But for this dispensation, till he come again, we have all we need in this Bible. I think it would be foolish to, to assume that, that once we come to see him face to face and become like him, as First John says, that there won't be anything else left to reveal. He's an infinite God. He's revealed his infiniteness as best as this finite mind can comprehend in 66 books and 32,000 verses. So there is yet more. We just want to clarify that it reached its zenith for us as humans in a mortal body with the closure of the New Testament canon in the Revelation. All right. There's no more to be said revealed to the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ at his second coming. That will usher in a new dispensation of God's self-revelation to mankind that we cannot begin to look into yet. And even if we could, we would not be responsible for it now. Because it's for that dispensation, just like the, it says the Old Testament's long to look into, the Old Testament prophets long to look into what we have, and they couldn't quite grasp it. The Bible says in the New Testament that we still see through a glass darkly. So what's on the other side of that glass? We see through it darkly. We can't fully comprehend, but we know that there's a time coming. Until then, biblical Christians, and we're having to use that term more and more because there's so many people that call themselves Christians, but not as defined by the Bible. We're having to use the term biblical Christianity now because there's a lot of Christianity so-called that is not biblical. Until then, biblical Christians operate under the last commandments delivered unto us. So we add that just because culture and scientific ability evolves doesn't mean that God's standard has changed. Amen. Just because science now can change your plumbing uh, doesn't mean God wants you to change your plumbing. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. I mean, really, just because we can nuke a civilization doesn't mean we should. Just because I can burn down your house doesn't mean I should. Just because I can take all my weapons and go to the Walmart and do something egregious doesn't mean I should. Just because we have the scientific know-how and we've cracked the cosmos with our brilliant minds doesn't mean we should play God. Amen. Those that fear God still follow his original design and intent. We have had to write these lessons because we're even watching evangelical Christianity in America begin to deconstruct biblical sexuality, mostly because the, the, the theologian or the pastor's child has turned out perverse. 
And rather than stick with Jesus, they stick with their child. This always reveals, so listen to me very carefully because I've had a lot of discussions on this. When you decide to go with your child over your God, you reveal to the world that your God is not real to you. Now, I'm very, 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 very thankful that at the age of 19, I heard Brother Hagen say, the Holy Spirit is more real to me than my own wife. And that blew my mind as a 19-year-old Baptist because I didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Much less he could be more real to me than my own wife. Now, at 19, I didn't have one, a wife. So I began to pray, hearing that man speak that, that the Holy Spirit would be more real to me than even my own flesh, that the presence of God would be more real to me than even my own clothing, that the shoes I was wearing would be less real to me than my God. That's a little bit closer than a wife. I thought maybe I outdid Brother Hagen a little bit. You don't get it mad at your own skin or your own clothes or shoes. You do get mad at your wife from time to time. So when a person begins to side with their child because of their they're their child rather than their God. They reveal who's real to them. And our job is to make sure our God is more real to us than anything, more real than our spouse, more real than our baby, more real than our life. Whoever you serve is your God. So when you ever say with your mouth, well, I could never deny my child or never deny my spouse for God's standard, you declare you're a Christ denier. There's no simple way to distill it any other way. We go with Jesus no matter who that takes us away from. So I had to write these lessons because I'm watching evangelicals who I thought were the stalwart gospel defenders begin to compromise the most basic of biological identity because their child ended up a lesbian or their son started flirting with transgenderism or whatever the next perverse thing will be. So they think just because they failed to protect and disciple their child that now God will give their kid a pass because they, as a modern pastor, I guess can add to the scripture now. Let's continue with our lessons. To review from lesson one, marriage has three pillars, monogamy, permanence, and procreation. This is what sociology and anthropology has observed. This is what the Bible affirms and establishes. Monogamy, permanence, and procreation. Procreation infers heterosexuality. You cannot inseminate feces and make a baby. Everybody understands that. You can prolapse a rectum attempting that, though. It's all fun and games till your guts fall out. These pillars have allowed marriage to be the foundation of civilization. Ethnologist and social anthropologist Joseph Daniel Unwin confirmed this fact in his landmark study published in 1934. Entitled Sex and Culture, the revolutionary study of 86 civilizations through five millennia of history observed a positive correlation between the cultural achievement of a people and the sexual restraint they observe. I have this book. It's about 700 pages. The evidence is that human societies are free to choose either to display great energy or to enjoy sexual freedom. Now, if you know anything about our culture, our nation, we enjoyed great sexual freedom in the 60s, and we've been going downhill ever since. It was called the sexual revolution. I happen to also teach that I believe America peaked in the 50s. Just my study of American history, my observation being a child of the 70s, and just watch us keep staggering down. I was teaching that before I found Dr. Unwin's book. It appears they cannot do both for more than one generation. This is 5,000 years of anthropological research. A culture cannot cast off sexual restraint for more than one generation. I would add that any culture any subculture that is defined by sexual looseness is a degenerate culture and an uncreative, unproductive culture. Well, that's our culture. That's even our subcultures in this society now. The whole of human history does not contain a single instance of a group becoming civilized unless it has been absolutely monogamous. 
nor is there any example of a group retaining its culture after it has adopted less rigorous customs. That's a polite way of saying they became whores and man whores. Not a single example in studying 86 cultures through 5,000 years of human history. All he's doing is observing. I don't know if he was a believer or not. He published this in 1934. He's just observing what the Bible taught. That marriage is to be monogamous and it becomes the foundation of civilized people. When you don't know who your daddy is, you're more liable to murder people because of angst, frustration. We've dealt with fatherless children in our church and it produces an inner turmoil and a, and a frustration and a, and a hopelessness. Amen. Our first lesson extracted the following eight truths from the creation account. Number one, mankind was made to be two and only two different genders, male and female. Pretty basic. I thought we all pretty much believed that until three years ago. Number two, God made human sexuality to be a binary. It's pretty simple. Pegs and slots. That's how it works. Three, male and female are the image of God. Any other gender mankind has created is apart from the image of God. It is therefore aberrant to divine design. Male, female, alone is the image of God. That's it. There's nothing else. Anything else you made up, you got from a demon who hates your God. Well, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. No, he doesn't, but demons do. And you listen to those demons. God does not make mistakes. So the mistake was made somewhere else. Maybe check your parenting or lack of it. Point four. The first institution created by God was marriage and by extension, the nuclear family. A father and mother were children with children surrounding them. That's a term came about obviously after the atomic age, but that's the nexus. That is the foundation of civilization. One father siring children with one mother in a loving relationship and the children growing up around them. Anything less than that begins to produce serious social issues. And it defines our whole American experience now. Even churches have to have broken marriage classes and mixed family classes and what all the other terms they call it now because we're dealing with a lot of psychological issues. But we rejected that in the 60s when we say no-fault divorce, and I just, I'm not happy. I want to upgrade. I want to train my, trade my 40-year-old in for 220s. Now we have uh, thruples. That's a threesome. That's three people in a committed relationship. They now, instead of calling it a couple, they call it a thruple. It's being bragged about. Well, you're just a Mormon wannabe is what you are. But with more Instagram likes. According to the law, point five, a first mention in Genesis, marriage is one man joined to one woman. We might add joined by God in his presence. Point six, God's blessing upon marriage makes it the greatest of all human relationships, greater even than the parent-child relationship. This is very hard when you have a weird relationship with your spouse and a perverse one with your kid. You raise your children to leave. You don't raise your child to nurse you the rest of their life. You raise that little girl, dads, to go be a tremendous woman of God and help another man fulfill the call of God. She's not your little weird thing you didn't get from your wife. And you mamas, you got to raise your boys to leave. Don't you dare say, you're just leaving me. Hope to God they do. If you have a walk with God, you don't need a little boy still nursing you. Amen. Weird. God gives us these children that we launch them as arrows. We don't sit at home and collect arrows. The whole concept that children are an inheritance, they're heritage, they're uh, blesses the man whose quiver is full of them. You don't collect arrows. You have them so you can launch them. And you want them to launch straight. 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 And far. I've never seen them successfully launch a corkscrew. And if you launch an arrow and they come back, it's not an arrow, it's a boomerang. 
And we're not aborigines. Aren't we ever reminded of that? We want those kids to go further and tell them, don't come back, except for Christmas and holidays. Maybe family vacation if we like each other. <laughs> Procreation point seven is the first commandment legislated by God. This is the first commandment of the entire Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. You cannot inseminate theses. Neither do two eggs bumping around in a uterus make a baby. This is only possible with a male-female union. And point eight, subduing the earth is the second commandment given. Authority and dominion were originally given to the marriage. Authority in the beginning was given to a husband and wife team. And it is implied that it was then taught to their children how to walk in that dominion and then carried on into their marriage. And thus the blueprint of God keeps getting passed down generation after generation after generation. It should break your heart if your grandkids don't know how to worship God. It should break your heart if your grandkids don't know how to tithe. It should break your heart if your grandkids don't know their Bible. Because it means something in the chain got broken. The first marriage role assignment. So this is where we start new material this morning. The first marriage role assignments, we would call those gender assignments. And this is where I start to really hurt evangelicals. I was sharing with Miss Hannah, and this will come out probably in the next lesson, which will be on egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Every prominent female minister outside of spirit-filled circles, because somehow being spirit-filled and knowing the Holy Spirit personally keeps even some of our more aggressive female ministers safe. Every non-Pentecostal, non-spirit-filled female minister that I have followed over the last 10 years who has begun to track egalitarianistic, which means I'm equal to my husband, they've all ended up divorced or woke. One's ended up, two ended up lesbians. They were married. They also all seem to end up tattooed. So that should let you know what's in the recipe of the egalitarianism. Egalitarian means we're equal, all things equality. We're equal. Versus complementarianism, which doctrine says husbands and wives are not equal. We complement each other. So when I talk about the first marriage role assignments, we see from the book of Genesis, men and women are not equal. Now, we have to qualify that because... We are equal as joint heirs together of the grace of life, according to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're equal in that we're both children of God. We're equal in that we're both creations. But apart from that, we're not equal. You're not equal to me, but I'm not equal to you. My friend Pastor Kerry says it this way. I can't breastfeed and she can't open up a jar of pickles. Now, why is that so insulting to people? I'm not fighting for my right to breastfeed. Why are you trying to deadlift as much as I can? Genesis recounts the seven days of creation in chapter 1. Chapter 2 dives deeper into the events of day 6. That's when God made man. The additional details of man's creation grant us more insight into biblical sexuality, gender identity, and gender roles. Genesis chapter 2 says, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man... He had made. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So we see this principle that man is made first. He's given an assignment to tend and keep over God's vision and God's heritage. And then God says, But he needs a helper. In that recollection of creation, we already see an inequality because man was made first. Now, I'm not saying he's first place, but when there's a first place and then there's a second place, there's not equality because first is different than second. So by simple English words, and definitions, 
we weren't even created equally in how we were created. So we're fighting for something that will never, ever, ever be possible. But you know, if you're a feminist and half demonized, by God, you can pound that square peg in a round hole if you want and destroy your own peace. It is best that we find what God made us to be and flourish in that. If I'm a hammer, I'm not going to fight for my right to be a screwdriver. I don't want to be a screwdriver, nor should a screwdriver fight to be a hammer. Be who God made you to be and enjoy that because it's the perfect will of God for you to be a woman or the perfect will of God for you to be a man. I don't understand what's well, a demon. It's a delusion. It's lunacy to want to be something you're not. And right now, equality and equity, these are the buzzwords that make people feel important. Meanwhile, they, do, they accomplish nothing in life while they hashtag equality. I'm not equal with people in my life, and it doesn't bother me a bit. I'll never be equal to the worship team and musical ability. I'll never be equal to the bankers and their ability with money. I'll never be a smartest physicist. I don't care. I don't care. I'll never be a world champion athlete. doesn't bother me a bit because I am what I am by the grace of God. And I'm content with who God made me to be. And because I'm at peace, I'm not trying to be something I was never meant to be. Most people who fight for this are miserable within their soul. And so they bite on the bait that you can be happy by being something you were never made to be. The details of the order of man's creation establish biblical gender identity and gender roles. Point number one, the man was set in the garden first, establishing leadership, headship, and visionary status. Leadership, headship, visionary status. He was on the scene first, which also means for husbands, they ought to be hearing from God first. They ought to be hearing from God first and foremost, and they ought to be able to know that uh, God's going to speak to them, and their wife ought to have courage knowing my man will hear from heaven. Too many women are frustrated by deadbeat men. I, I, I taught a while back on uh, feminism, especially second-wave feminism. We're into like the fourth or fifth wave. You can't keep it up. Mine, you know, first-wave feminism is, hey, we want to vote. Great. Current feminism is like 12-year-olds on Twitter mad at daddy. So I don't know if I would really call it a real social movement as it is more like a, a gnat in your ear. If you're not on Twitter, you don't know what's happening. I understand feminism because women are frustrated that men won't grow up and they're tired of having to do everything because the man is still looking for a woman to nurse from. So if men would step up and be what God created them to be, be the visionary, be the protector, be the defender, be the strong voice, then the women wouldn't have a need for all this wicked feminism. But feminism defaults uh, when men don't play the role they're called to play. Number two, the wife was made for her husband. She was made to be a helper just right for him. This requires her to adapt to him and uh, as affirmed by the scriptures. This is very controversial today, even among Baptists, not all Baptists, just the denomination and the big guys and evangelicals to say that a woman should adapt to her husband, not a woman adapt to a general man, but a wife adapt to her husband is very controversial because of feminism. The Bible commands a wife to submit to her husband. Pastor Okwokwo, when he was alive, and he passed away in 2014, so he's been in heaven now nine years. He was frustrated at the Southern Baptists. I don't mean to pick on them, but it was the topic at the time. And I don't even, I had no bone in the fight. It was just frustrating for him, so he'd voice it to me. He'd say, why have your Baptists changed their faith and doctrine to say that we ask a woman to graciously submit to her husband when the scriptures don't say that. Why did they add gracious? Why are they softening the Bible's language? Now, I understand the, the concept. We want to graciously. We wouldn't want to lord it over them, but it bugged him that they were beginning to soften a stance because they were feeling social pressure. The wife was made for her husband, and I've taught this a lot that women are made more complex, more beautiful, with more nuance, with the ability to adapt. Women have the adaptable ability that men don't. 
Even us men on jobs, we don't really adapt much on the job. We still just become a hammer on the job. We just drive in different size nails in. And I've taught in Africa and in our country that women are the Swiss Army knives. And they have every tool in them a man could ever need to fulfill the vision. So I don't diminish women or the creation, but they very much do have to adapt. And I've used the example. If I were to die and my wife were to remarry, she would adapt to him and his vision. If my wife were to die and I would remarry, I would change nothing. Now I would adapt to my wife because she would have a new wife. She'd have a different personality, have different needs, but I'm still on the same track, pastoring a church, doing missions, writing books, etc. We understand it. We get it. So the scriptures affirm this. Now I point out this is from the Amplified because it is bringing out the Greek nuances, but Ephesians 5.22 says for wives to be submissive and adapt yourselves. Colossians 3.18 says, For wives to subordinate and adapt yourselves to them, your husband. Not any other man, your husband. But just like we adapt ourselves to our bosses and our managers, you adapt. We all have the ability to adapt. Titus 2.5 uh, says, Adapting and subordinating themselves to their husbands. 1 Peter 3.1 says, Subordinate uh, yourselves as being secondary to and dependent on them, your husband, and adapt yourselves to them. Subordinate yourselves as being secondary to and dependent on them and adapt yourselves to them. This is biblical gender assignments. Not just in the book of Genesis, not just in the garden, in Pauline and Peter epistles. And this is egregious to some of you even right now. Scripture. It is worth observing that the above quotes are from the 1987 edition of the Amplified Bible. The 2015 version of the Amplified Bible omits all references to adaptation from each of these verses. <laughs> Your modern Bible apps, when you look this up in the Amplified, will not have the word adapta adaptation or adapt in any of those verses. But if you still have the old classic red version, hardback, because that's the only way they published it back in the day, these verses are quoted from the old printed version of the Amplified. But the Greek still says the same thing. The definition of the Greek still implies adaptation. The wife is tasked with and graced to help with her husband's God-given vision and assignment. These are gendered assignments. And this is why... As a young person, when you're looking to marry, you have to figure out what the man's calling is. Part of your courtship isn't just muscles and coffee or curves and lattes. It's what's your calling. And do I want to hook my train to your locomotive? That's very, very important. Because I hate to see powerful young women stuck behind... Oh, dead locomotive. When you could see mountain vistas way up into the mountain ranges, you're stuck in the valley, and he's trying to figure out, what do I do next? How about we start with shoveling some coal in your steam boiler? I mean, we don't have enough steam to go, woo If we were to pull on it, we'd just go, boom, boom. <laughs> the creation of gender. I think it is a task of utter cultural retardation that anyone would get a degree in gender studies. Why that's even a degree is beyond me. My little girls, when my son was born, they got all they needed to know at gender studies when they came to visit their little brother, six hours old. We were worried about what would my girls think about a penis? And they, they were learning, they were prepped, that your brother's going to be different. He's a little brother. What makes him different? He has boy parts. What do boy parts look like? And it was, <laughs> I have the picture of the, of the event in the, bat, in the, the hospital. We, we had a gender reveal party for the girls. <laughs> we had a great unveiling. So they're so excited to see their little brother. So Abigail is like three and a half. Lydia is six. They'd never seen boy parts before. So my wife's like, do we do it? I said, we got to do it. They're going to see him naked the rest of their life till they start getting body hair. So, because he's a little boy, he's going to run through the house naked. So there he is laying on mama's lap and she's real nervous because we've never done this before. Like, is this weird? Is it, we're going to go to hell for this? What, 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 what? 
So we undid the diaper and we went, all ready? Three, two, one, da-da. And both of them went, oh. And then they went back to just looking at his little face and putting their fingers in his eyes and his mouth. That's all you need to know about gender studies. That's a penis. That's a vagina. Da-da, you're done. All right? To think that some idiot would waste 100 grand on a PhD in this and then want me to pay for that degree? Oh, how the mighty nation of the U.S. has fallen. And not an African on the continent says, I'm going to go to America because I want a Ph.D. in gender studies. They say, I want a degree in something useful. Engineering, medicine, physics, gender studies. Let's talk about what God says about gender. Much has also been made of the two different verbs used in Scripture to describe how each gender was created. God only created two genders, each assigned to a specific biological type. Two genders, two sexes. You get into sociology and gender studies, they want to start to distinguish that there's a difference between sex and gender. Gender is how you identify. Sex is biological. Blah, 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 blah. You're splitting words so you can be a freak show. If you stand to pee, you're a male and you're of the male gender. If you have to squat to pee, you're not a man. The male gender is attached by God to the male body. The female gender is attached by God to the female body. This is confirmed through hormones. Men have testosterone, which makes us aggressive by nature, and aggression is a male gender behavioral type. Estrogen and other hormones make women more caring, more nurturing. This is why when women are pregnant, they can't even stand to kill a bug because it's got a mommy somewhere. I heard a big bug hit the windshield on the way home, honey, and I sobbed. I can't do this. And the spiders, I used to get the vacuum out to suck up in the house they start naming all thousand babies that they have in the corner. We can't kill those. Those are babies. And the guy's like, I'll just raid the whole house if you want me to with raid because they don't care. Behavior is attached to biology and gender roles are attached to biology. I, this is really insane that we're having to even teach this to a spirit-filled church. But you know, a lot of what I do is affected by living in the shadow of a university. And as good as our university is, it's still full of students and professors, spirit-filled professors excluded. So we have to address this because our nation has gone crazy. Point three, man was formed, the Hebrew yatsar, from the dust of the earth. This is the same verb that is applied to a potter and his clay. Man was the second thing God formed. The animals were first. So man was formed from the dirt just as animals were, but God breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. That distinguished him from the animals. Yatsar, to form, to mold. Point four, women. Woman was built. Women are built. That's a different verb, bana, from the man's rib. Women were not made from mud. They were made from man. So we're not even created with the same process. There'll never be an equity or an equality. We're not made the same. We're made by two totally different processes. And this is God revealing how the whole thing works. This is the word used to build cities, altars, and houses. Woman was the first thing God ever built. Now, that ought to make you ladies feel very, very, very important. You are the first thing God ever built. Me, I come after the zebras. Aardvark, that's a double A. Zebra, man. Everything in between came before I did. And then he's like, mud, 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 mud. How do we distinguish this mud thing from everybody else? Let's breathe into him a spirit. <sighs> hey, can we talk? Yeah, yeah, okay. And then woman is built totally different. 
Why would you want ladies to be like me? You'd have to come down. This is how we know feminism and modern culture hates women. Why would you want to be like me? Why would you stoop to want to be a man? Why listen to the stupid song of our culture? Anything he can do, I can do better. Why? Why would you even want to? Do what you do. Why compete? Be what God made you to be. There is no equality. There is no equity. And it's the will of God to be so. Be content with who God made you to be. Fascinating point five is the fact that despite having been created by a more complex means than man, God still acknowledges that woman is the weaker vessel. I think this is like a sledgehammer is a very simple tool. And a curling iron is not. And so even though a curling iron or maybe something like a Swiss timepiece is way more intricately built than a sledgehammer, it's a lot more delicate. This is a fact. Women are the weaker vessel. A fact egregiously exploited by trans women athletes. As recent sporting events have confirmed, mediocre men can absolutely destroy top-tier females. And now all the sporting circuits are wanting to adjust and accommodate that. The implication of the literal creative differences is profound. The differences between male and female biology and gender begin with the creation process. These Hebrew words undermine the theological doctrine of egalitarianism. This will be discussed in a later lesson. Based on the definition of the Hebrew words, male and female were not created equal. They were created by God using two totally different processes and for two different roles. However, they were created from unity to accomplish a single purpose, the will of God. We complement each other in the union. When referring to their combined creation, the Hebrew does use a third general word, bara. The generic term is applied to all of creation. So we were created, bara, but we were created using two processes, forming and building, molding and building. Original intent. There were only two genders at creation. There was never a third, fourth, fifth, or 90th gender option. So I don't care what your college application asks, there's really only two. You got to feel bad for entrance people at the university. Those, they got to stoop to this level of drool. We turn out physicists, theoretical ones, and rocket scientists, and we have to play this charade with 18-year-olds. Because if not, they don't feel visible. They feel marginalized if you don't have what they identify as on the form. What does it matter whether you are observed or marginalized? Just get into school and do your best and get a degree. Like you circling a dot adds value to your life. Like all my life, all I've ever been offered is the Caucasian bubble. I don't care if that's stupid and wrong in a racist term from 1850. I'm not from the Caucasus Mountain region. But that didn't affect how I was going to perform in school. And if you look up the origin of the term Caucasian, it is a racist term. But you know why whites don't bellyache? Because we weren't taught by mama to bellyache. Amen. The popular academic, political, social, and theological practice of deconstructing gender norms is an exercise of lawlessness. Deconstructionists seem incapable of producing a superior outcome from the pile of pieces they amass. Deconstructionists never produce anything better, especially when it comes to God's design. The significance of, being, of man being made first is repeated in the New Testament. But there is one thing I want you to know, Paul said, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. For the man, the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. Boy, can't you hear Gloria Steinem's head erupt 
(laughs) Woman was made for man, according to Genesis, according to Paul, according to God. Not to be exploited, not to be enslaved, not to be abused, to accomplish the will of God. If you don't want the will of God, you don't need to get married. You don't get married because you're lonely. You get married because there's a kingdom to build and the two of you can do a better job. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from a woman and everything comes from God. So you see the perfect harmony and balance and the tension both created and relieved about human sexuality in these five verses. The NLT brings out that Paul is addressing the Lord's people. This is, not, uh, uh, this is us, not the world. The world will do what the world will do. They sail wherever Satan's winds blow. If we are truly God's people, the words and doctrine of our God should not offend us. Though there were certainly homosexuals in abundance in the Roman Empire during which time Paul wrote, the God-breathed scriptures still only say, uh, only saw and still only see marriage as a union between one man and one woman. From Genesis 2, we can see other doctrinal points. The Genesaic pattern for marriage and gender roles is very simple. Point six, one man, the husband, leading in accordance with God's vision. This is the gender role. Men lead. Don't marry a man who doesn't have a voice. Marry a man who knows where he's going. And even if he's a little wrong, he can direct it. The biggest frustration I hear from wives is my man has no vision. My man has no voice. Why'd you marry him? I didn't know better. Well, sorry. Let's help the next generation. That's why wives or mamas, you got to raise boys to have a voice, to know how to lead, to be strong, to be courageous, to be fearless, to not be afraid to make mistakes. Point seven, married to one woman. The man is married to one woman designed and created to help and aid her husband in the fulfillment of the divine vision. This is a gender assignment. She was made for him. Wives, if you have the confidence that you've married in the will of God, you have to have this confidence to know I was made for him. I was designed for him. The graces I have fit him. Plus the anointing of God, plus the spirit of God are going to help me help him. We can't be stopped. The only way we can be stopped is if we're a house divided. You don't need two hammers in a home. You don't need two ratchets. One of you's redundant. We need two totally different people fitting each other for the call of God. Point eight, together they live not to chase their dreams, but to accomplish the vision of God that one man or one woman could not achieve alone. This is why we get married. You're sitting awfully quiet. I don't know what your issue is. Maybe you're realizing you're more feminist and lesbian than you'd like to agree or acknowledge. We've had the Bible our whole life. We just don't pay attention to it. We've let television, social media, and professors steer our train of thought. All you have to do is have two different sexes of kids, because there's only two, and watch how different they are. Absy still wants baby dolls. Bud Bud turns everything into a weapon. We didn't teach them these gender norms. It's part of their DNA. (laughs) The remainder of Scripture, especially the New Testament, thoroughly established these guidelines. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. You hear that? You leave. You leave. If you're successful, they leave and they don't come back. And they cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Verse 24 was prophetic. It was declared before Adam and Eve had become parents and before there were any kids to leave or the possibility of a new family to start. A a man shall leave father and mother. They don't even know what a father or mother is yet. And shall cleave to his wife. They don't even know what that is yet. What is courtship? What is it? What is a marriage union? All they have is a one man and one woman. And he's looking at her. And Adam is the one who declares this. How is he even declaring this when he doesn't know what a father is yet or a mother is yet? But the Spirit of God is coming upon the first man declaring God's intent. A a man 
not a sexual unicorn, something just made up in the last five years of academia, a man who stands to pee, leaves a mother and a father, not two dads, not two moms, and joins his wife, not another man. And they become one flesh. Homosexual unions never entered the mind of God when he created man or family. One of the most famous evangelical female teachers, whose name I will omit. I didn't say spirit-filled, I said evangelical. She was a Southern Baptist darling. Uh, she rejoiced about four or five years ago when her daughter, no, three years ago when her daughter came out as a lesbian. This is a lady whose books are in all sorts of Lifeway bookstores. And she said in one of her posts, I read it, she said, I'm so proud of you. I can't wait to help you find the wife God has for you. This is one of the premier Southern Baptist teaching darlings. She subsequently, within the last year, has divorced her husband, who, by the way, got fully tattooed. It's just interesting. All this seems to run together in the same perverse sewer. When you forget what a husband and wife look like, and you start promoting your daughter's lesbian marriage, you forget what your commitment to your husband was. Homosexuality never entered the mind of God. Genesis 2 concludes by using binary-based familial terms, thus reiterating the divine design. Man, father. Mother, wife. Man, wife. Binary. We're not interested in breaking the binary. We don't acknowledge non-binary. That's nothing but confusion. From these two verses, we see two more truths established. Point nine, children are to leave their parents when they join in matrimony. This is a psychological and physical detachment from parents to make room for the God-ordained spousal covenant and attachment. This truth right here was ordained before honor thy father and mother. Leaving mom and dad was established before honor mom and dad. So which comes first? Weird, perverse parents will exploit Exodus 20 and ignore Genesis 2. I'm your mother. You're supposed to honor me. No, you're a needy, dysfunctional woman. And I'm commanded by my God to leave. And I don't have to be on your teat to honor you. I don't have to hold your hand to honor you. I can honor you from my dorm room or from my career chair, praying for you every day, that you would have a walk with God. The two are not mutually exclusive. They don't negate each other. It can be both. But it also confirms that there is no parent-child covenant, only a husband-wife covenant. There is no parent-child covenant. Once I have raised you, I am done. My job now is to pray for you and give you wisdom. Point 10, the husband and wife are without, are without shame in their intimate nakedness. And here we distinguish intimate nakedness from other necessary nakedness, such as medical or communal bathing. You know, the doctor has to see you naked. There's no shame there. I mean, there's shame on your part. He looks at parts all day long. It's just an oil change to him. It's your glory. <laughs> it's what they do all day. They don't think anything of it. It's very intimate and embarrassing for us, but I just have to tell myself when the doctor says, drop your britches, I'm like, I'm the fifth guy today he said that to. So this is nothing personal. <laughs> and for you ladies, I, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And then communal nakedness, locker rooms, middle school locker rooms, college locker rooms. You go to the gym to the days, people walk around naked. There's no shame, only and the intimate nakedness of husband and wife. Hetero, hetero marital intimacy is the only form of intimate nakedness that is without shame in the eyes of God. Thus we see that the building block of civilization and culture was established and affirmed in the first two chapters of Genesis. Marriage is permanent, monogamous, 
and procreative, which by default means heterosexual. If any of these three pillars is rejected or perverted, society will begin to crumble. That culture will begin to rot. That culture will begin to rot. Even subcultures. You reject permanence and just start having multiple wives when you're inconvenienced by the previous one. You start sleeping around. You have thruples and polygamy and sisters' wives, all that weird perversion. Or you just don't have kids. Then that culture begins to decay. You're awfully quiet. I don't know if maybe you didn't like this whole level of biblical sexuality. You're just listening really good. I'm not sure what it is. Our nation has lost its mind. I was talking with a friend of mine about the whole gay issue. A man in my circles, spirit-filled, word of faith, Rama, Dr. Barclay, Lester Summerall kind of circles. He told me, you wouldn't believe how many pastors in our circle are going pro-gay. Former Rama grads, Lester Summerall's disciples, Dr. Barclay disciples. I had someone recently ask me, would you really reject your children if they didn't turn out the way you expected them to? I said, well, number one, qualify what you mean didn't turn out. But if we're talking antichrist, absolutely. Well, I just don't agree with that. Well, then you don't know your Bible and you don't love your God. Absolutely. Because I'm not going to hell for anybody. God is more real to me than my skin, more real to me than my wife, more real to me than my kids. And because he's more real to me, I don't have a problem taking a stand for what is right. And we have to take a stand for what is biblical. We must not forget that all this perversion that we're dealing with is the inspiration of demons. And Paul said, I would not you had fellowship with devils. When we try to make this a psychological thing, we're deceived. When we try to make this a nurture thing, we're deceived. When we try to make this an evolutionary thing, we are deceived. This is the work of demons and deluded people. And so we stand for righteousness. We stand for the word. We love everybody, but we stand for righteousness. Amen?